You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Special Reports on Legal Talk Network. This is Lawrence Coletti, and I'm the host for today's show, which is being recorded at the American Bar Association's Mid-Year Meeting in San Diego, California. We're here to cover this event for you, our listeners, and joining me now as a special guest, I have Mr. Alan Brownstein. He's joining us today to talk about a panel group that he was part of here called The Intersection of Religious Freedom and LGBT Rights, a slow-motion car crash question mark, and it's sponsored by the ABA Section of Civil Rights and Social Justice, Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity Committee. Did I get it right? You got it right. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us, Alan. And before we get started, you know, just for the benefit of our audience, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where do you work and what do you do? Uh, I'm a professor emeritus at the University of California, Davis School of Law. Uh, I teach constitutional law, law and religion. Uh, My primary area of expertise is church-state issues. When we went through the lineup of uh, different ABA events, this event jumped out at us. Uh, Legal Talk Network is uh, primarily located in Denver, Colorado. And we had a case, a uh, wedding cake baker, that uh, that was uh, part of a, a lawsuit that kind of falls in the crosshairs of your of your discussion here. And so wanted to get into that. And uh, and I think you know the case uh, that I'm talking about. I do. And uh, so let, if you wouldn't mind, because I think you're going to know more about it than I do, uh, maybe just briefly about the facts and we can kind of get into the layers of argument there. Okay. I mean, the core issue here, and it's an issue uh, that has arisen not only in this Colorado case involving a baker, but in other cases, one in New Mexico involving a wedding photographer, another case in the state of Washington involving a florist. Um, You know, the basic scenario is that there's a business that provides goods and services to the general community. A member of the LGBT community asks this business to provide goods or services to them, and the business refuses to do so on the grounds that doing so would violate their religious convictions. So, for example, a baker refuses to provide a wedding cake for a same-sex couple that's getting married because the baker's religious convictions are in conflict with same-sex relationships and marriages. Uh, Or the florist is unwilling to provide a flower arrangement for a same-sex wedding celebration. Or the wedding photographer is unwilling to accept the assignment to take photographs at a same-sex wedding celebration. In all of these cases, there is a clash between the religious convictions of the business owner and the members of the LGBT community uh, who want to be free from discrimination in places of public accommodation. Although these cases get a lot of public attention, it should be clear that there aren't many of these cases that are being raised and adjudicated. This is an important problem, but it's not a pervasive problem. What do you mean by that? Well, for example, if I was discussing discrimination against the LGBT community in the United States. I would describe that until recently as being pervasive and oppressive. Uh, Members of the LGBT community were denied the right to marry, often denied the right to adopt children. Um, They were discriminated against in employment, in places of public accommodation, in housing. There was what we would describe as pervasive discrimination against the members of this community. And as everyone knows, 
in addition to commercial discrimination, there was gay bashing. There were physical attacks and assaults on members of the LGBT community. So one might reasonably describe that as very generalized and pervasive oppression. Okay. What we're talking about here with regard to religious businesses, it's a very important issue for the particular individuals and businesses that are involved, but it's not a pervasive framework of discrimination that's being directed against religious individuals. That's a great place to start. And so, admittedly, uh, we had a little pregame before this because when I was reading about these cases, so complex that I needed a little bit of a roadmap to kind of guide the discussion. Uh, We want to try to keep it higher level because the the details are staggering. And so, but, uh, but, you know, these are issues being discussed at the American Bar Association mid-year meeting. And I think, you know, they they need to be, you know, given a little daylight here via podcast. And so uh, you and I talked about right before we started that there was a couple different areas of concern. See, on one side, you have constitutional uh, concerns and on the other side, you have statutory concerns. And depending on the facts of the case and depending on um, what state you're in, this is going to have a different effect. So let's go there. Let's start with the constitutional one, because I think that's the one that everyone has a kind of a share. I mean, if you've been in law school, you have a shared understanding of it, and then maybe we'll uh, get into the statutory ones. Well, I mean, I think that's exactly the right place to start, and I think many people would be surprised to learn that the Constitution is generally silent about the resolution of these disputes. Not entirely silent. It's not completely irrelevant, uh, but it's rarely dispositive. And the reason for that is, one, these are private sector disputes, So, for example, if you think, well, the Equal Protection Clause should protect gays and lesbians against discrimination, that may be true, although the court hasn't held that yet, but the Equal Protection Clause doesn't apply to private actors. It only applies to state action. So the Equal Protection Clause is largely irrelevant to these disputes. One might certainly think that the Free Exercise Clause Uh, would be relevant to these disputes and would provide protection to religious individuals who asserted that these laws interfered with their religious exercise and beliefs and required them to violate their religious convictions. But that isn't true either, because the United States Supreme Court decided a case called Employment Division v. Smith in 1990 that the free exercise clause provides no protection against neutral laws of general applicability. And what we mean by a neutral law of general applicability is a law that applies to everyone. It doesn't single out religious individuals or institutions for unfavorable treatment. And civil rights laws are neutral laws of general applicability. They apply to everyone whether you're religious or not. So you can't assert a viable free exercise claim against a civil rights law that interferes with your religious practice. There are a few narrow exceptions to this holding, but for the most part, you simply don't have that kind of constitutional claim available. Okay, so that that covers the constitutional concerns. Almost. Almost, okay. Okay, okay. The one constitutional area where you might have a viable constitutional claim deals with what is called compelled speech. Okay, all right. All right, now what compelled speech involves is the government telling an individual either to communicate the government's message 
or to communicate some other private individual's message. And the wedding uh, photographer in the New Mexico case and the baker in the Colorado case argued that they are engaged in a creative and expressive activity such that requiring them to provide a wedding cake for a same-sex marriage celebration or to photograph a same-sex marriage celebration would involve compelled speech. They would be required to express a message that they were endorsing these celebrations when their religious convictions prohibited them from doing so. Um, The courts ruled against the baker and the wedding photographer in both of these cases. On constitutional grounds? On constitutional grounds. They said there was not compelled speech in either case. In part, the courts doubted whether either of these activities were sufficiently expressive and creative in nature for them to be viewed as speech for compelled speech purposes. And the courts were also concerned that if we exempted all creative and expressive activities from the coverage of civil rights laws, we would tear an enormous hole in the fabric of the civil rights laws that protect so many groups in our society from discrimination. And there's a lot to it. So just one follow-up on that, and then we'll get into the statutory elements. And so I had a follow-up with that. Why, okay, I know, and I remember reading about this in Denver, Colorado, that there was a written messaging on the, the wedding cake that the, the baker objected to. And, and if my memory serves me correct, the baker actually offered to bake the cake, but just refused to write the messaging on the cake. And so that was kind of one of the distinctions there. So why did the Colorado, I guess, uh, based on what you just told me, where where did the uh, where did the baker fail to meet his burden when it came to proving that he had a, a constitutional uh, uh, issue? Well, in fact, um, the baker didn't refuse to write a particular message on the cake. Oh, so I have, I have my facts right. Yeah, he okay. refused to my sell apologies. the cake at all. Okay. okay. And the Court of Appeals did suggest that if there was a dispute about a particular message that was to be placed on the cake, that might be a different question. Okay. That okay. might be a more difficult question. But there's still the question of whose message is it? Uh, it's one thing to say that you're being compelled to uh, you know, express a, a message where people would read the message and assume that this message reflects your own beliefs, uh, and that it really reflects your own personal expression. But who thinks that's true? when you buy a birthday cake or a wedding cake. You know, if you buy a birthday cake, if I buy a birthday cake for my son that says, happy birthday, Ben, nobody thinks the baker is really saying happy birthday to my son. So there's a question of whether or not this is really the baker speech or if everyone really understands this to be, the, the baker is merely a conduit for transferring someone else's message and query whether compelled speech should apply as rigorously in that circumstance as it does in other circumstances. I think that's a really great explanation, and thanks for uh, clarifying my facts there. So I think that makes a li- that makes a big difference in the analysis. So let's move on to the statutory element. So we had an interesting uh, pre-game discussion about that. So, but let's move into those. Uh, what, what statutory elements would apply here in these in this series okay. of cases? All right. Now it doesn't apply in every state. Okay. Uh, okay. So some states protect members of the LGBT community against discrimination in employment, in place of uh, public accommodation, in housing. If there isn't a civil rights law 
that protects the LGBT community against discrimination, you're not going to have a conflict. And probably about uh, a little less than half of the states in the United States have these kinds of anti-discrimination laws. Now, other states, some of the same states, have religious liberty protection laws. Most of these laws were modeled after a federal statute called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or RIFRA. And this law subjects any state action that substantially burdens religious exercise to very rigorous review. And what that means is there's a very substantial burden of justification that the state has to meet in order to validate this law. So, for example, if a state had a RIFRA law and a baker or a wedding photographer was required to photograph a same-sex wedding celebration or provide a wedding cake for a same-sex wedding celebration, and they argued that that substantially burdened their religious convictions, they could go to court and they could demand that the state justify applying this law to them under strict scrutiny. That means the state would have to demonstrate that it had a compelling state interest in adopting this law, and this was the least restrictive way for the state to further that compelling state interest. Okay. So the state would say, well, our compelling state interest is equality and anti-discrimination, uh, providing a commercial environment that's open to everyone in our society. That's a very important interest. Courts might well consider it to be compelling, and some courts have. The next question would be, is there a less restrictive way for the court to accomplish this goal? And here, I think that's a hard question for the bakers or the wedding photographers to succeed in their, in their arguments, because one of the consequences of discrimination is that the victims of discrimination suffer an affront to their personal dignity. They're denied services that they have every right to think they are entitled to as a member of the public. And exactly how do you go about protecting members of the LGBT community against that personal indignity and affront other than with a civil rights law that prohibits discrimination against them? The other issue would be well, what about the material burden on not being able to get the good and service, good or service that they, they're trying to purchase? How does the state go about arranging that members of the LGBT community can obtain wedding photographers, wedding case, floral arrangements, uh, maybe jobs, maybe housing, all of the things that members of the LGBT community might be denied if we allowed religious exemptions? to these civil rights laws. So there's certainly a significant argument that even if you had a state RIFRA law, it might be interpreted to uh, uphold these civil rights laws against the religious liberty challenge that was directed against them. Wow, that, that is uh, really, really a lot of information. And I think that is really, that clear? Yeah, no, I think it's very clear. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's just it, it just it goes to as an example of how complex these laws could be when they when they work, because uh, there's a lot of overlapping components there. There's definitely a lot of complexity, but you don't want to lose track in thinking about the technical complexity of the law, about the human element. 
uh, of what's involved in these lawsuits. And here, there's really some common ground that both members of the LGBT community and religious individuals share. Because what they're both saying is, you know, I have a basic right of personal autonomy, a right to live with human dignity, to, to make self-defining decisions that are vitally important uh, to my identity. And that's true both for gays and lesbians. It's true for religious individuals. You know, people who say that sexual orientation is a lifestyle, they're being silly. They're being ridiculous. This is a core aspect of a person's identity. And the religious and devout religious individual's relationship with God, that's not a lifestyle either. That's a critical component of this individual's identity. Um, and so you really do have, in these relatively isolated cases, uh, very important personal interests that are being asserted by both sides. And you know what we would really hope to accomplish is to find some way that could be respectful for both the members of the LGBT community and the devout religious individuals who want to live according to their faith. I agree. I think, that's, I think that's a really good notion and almost a good place to leave it. In the spirit of the title of your speaking event, The Intersection of Religious Freedom and LGBT Rights, A Slow Motion Car Crash, I want to ask one more, like, it, this is a hypothetical because it hasn't happened. Sure. And uh, because we're trying, uh, I think the goal here is to try to balance the interest in a way that's fair, that, uh, you know, meets everybody's needs and expectations. And so let me change the fact pattern just a little bit. And let's try to get this. We, have, we do have to wrap it up. We are running out of time. And so uh, we got another interview waiting for us. But uh, I just want to ask this really quick fact pattern. Just change the fact pattern just a little bit. So let's take the photographer in the New Mexico case. And so let's say that uh, a same-sex couple comes in and uh, says, hey, we'd like you to photograph our wedding. And let's say that the photographer says, well, normally I would, but the date that you have set for it is a religious holiday for me. And so now you have the expectations of, of a same-sex couple that wants to have this, this ceremony, but you also have this religious expectation of the photographer just can't do it this day, and, they, and it comes to blows. And so there's a That's suit. actually a very easy case. Okay. Because the decision of the wedding photographer is clearly not based on discriminatory motive. Gotcha. They would refuse anyone who wanted them to photograph a wedding on their religious holiday. So there, there's no discrimination uh, it wouldn't matter whether it was a heterosexual wedding or a homosexual wedding. They would still say, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm closed today. It's a religious holiday. I guess the way I would want to close this uh, uh, discussion is, you know, the title is, this is a slow motion car crash. And from my perspective, the really hard work before us is to figure out a way to avoid collisions and to shed a road. Well, thank you so much for uh, humoring my my hypothetical there. And I think, and honestly, I learned a lot on this one. I, I didn't realize, you know, I had I knew it was complicated. I didn't realize how complicated. And uh, you know, it makes a lot of sense why some of these cases have been uh, long, long in the pipeline to come to a result. So, uh, thank you so much, Alan, for for stopping by, educating us uh, on this very uh, serious issue uh, that's going on today. And uh, if our listeners wanted to reach out, had some more questions, how can they find you? Uh, they can probably email me at. University of California Davis School of Law. If you go to the law school website and look at uh, emeritus professors, uh, you'll find my contact information. Excellent. This has been another edition of Special Reports. I'm Lawrence Coletti from Legal Talk Network. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you so much, Alan. That was fantastic. 
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.